Diversion Audio. Hi, I'm Natalie Emmanuel. From Ramsay in Fast and Furious to Missandei in Game of Thrones, I've loved playing roles of women whose resourcefulness, intelligence, and inner strength are pushed to the limit. And I've been inspired by women who withstood the phenomenal pressures of being a wartime leader. The history books too often will have us believe that the stories of leaders in times of war are stories of men, until now. This episode, we rewind back to Roman times. We'll meet a war queen for whom the words take no prisoners might have been written, Boudicca. I'm proud to present War Queens, a podcast about powerful women leaders throughout the centuries and around the world. We are here because for the first time for many years, British sovereign territory has been invaded by a foreign power. We will continue to do everything possible to avoid an armed conflict. And the situation is a, a grave one. We are driven by necessity to prepare to defend what was just gained, our freedom and our very being. Telling us the story of Queen Boudicca is our daughter-father history team, Emily and John Jordan. It's great to see you, Natalie. Great to see you both. Now, Natalie, I believe you grew up in Essex, England, and Mm -hmm. some of our listeners in America might not know where that is. Can you tell us where Essex is? Essex is on the southeast coast of England. Well, my little town is, but it's in a county just in the southeast of England. I'm from a town called Southend-on-Sea, which is really the estuary of the Thames. It's about an hour, hour and a half out of London, but it's that, yeah, like a county just outside of London in the southeast. I see. Now, in that county of Essex, there's a city called Colchester. Did I pronounce Colchester right? No, you did it right. Okay. (laughs) That's a first then. Thanks. Colchester used to be called Camelodunum. It was a Roman city that Queen Boudicca, the subject of our episode today, destroyed during Roman times. Now, as a girl growing up in Essex, did you like history when you went to school? Yes. History was my favorite subject. It was the one that I probably was the best in other than like I don't know, sports or something. History was definitely a favorite subject of mine. Well, in history class, did they teach you anything about Queen Boudicca? And if so, what did you hear about her? To be honest, not a thing. Really? A, a lot of our, um, yeah, it is a shame. When a she lot, came through your county and burned stuff. Literally. <laughs> Colchester is really not that far from where I grew up. And I actually used to dance there sometimes in competitions. Tap dancing over the ashes Queen Boudicca <laughs> left. Yeah, but a lot of our history was around the kind of like Tudor area. Or the, mm-hmm. well, you know, the sort of yeah. like uh, Henry VIII. The showcase and, um, Yeah, the sort of, of big history. parts. Glad we're able to bring out the areas that are not just the showcase parts, but mm-hmm. Boudicca's yeah. one of them. Well, we did see Boudicca's statue in London. Dad, you took my picture there. Mm-hmm. And London is actually a city she burned nearly 2,000 years ago, back when it was called Londinium, which sounds like it should be on the periodic table of elements. <laughs> so, Emily, why don't you climb into the war chariot and tell us the story of Queen Boudicca?
Thanks, Natalie. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Boudicca of the Britons, who is the widowed queen of the Celtic Iceni tribe uh, in eastern Britain. She was one of the fiercest national war leaders in history. Now, the Iceni tribe were a Celtic tribe. Uh, Julius Caesar, a few other people write about them. They were said to be kind of tall and big boned and they had reddish blonde hair, kind of like the look you were going for when you accidentally dyed your hair uh, pumpkin orange in the seventh grade. I was going for a strawberry blonde. Yeah. um, I did not buy enough dye. Well, so you became Iceni. Yeah, it was kind of more of a spotted cheetah look uh, because I didn't use enough. But anyway. The Iceni were known for their savagery during wartime, but during time of peace, they were devoted to druidic rituals. They wore these really thick silver necklaces, which were called torques around their necks, and they were actually pretty cultured, and they had overall pretty good manners, um, definitely in peacetime. Yeah, they they were a civilized society. Um, They had their big, they, they had their silver bling. Um, you know, I tend to think of old, the old Celts as like these dudes in blue body paint running around screaming freedom, like, you know, Mel Gibson and Braveheart. Yeah. But that's that's sort of not really who they were. Actually, when Julius Caesar was there in 54 BC, he said that the uh, tribes up there painted themselves with kind of a blue dye uh, and that looked like tattoos. So that that might be a little bit true. Yeah, kind of hard to know exactly what he was referring to. It could have been like they just had sleeve tats or... Yeah, and Caesar really wasn't up there for that long of a time. He invaded them twice, but only for a few months each time. And he really only got as far as the Thames River, uh, which is in present-day London. He didn't really know a lot about what the tribes of the north were doing. Um, and that includes uh, Boudicca and the Iceni. Caesar would invade Britain and eventually use his five legions to subdue different tribes, including the Iceni. Yeah, and that was what Caesar claimed. Now, Caesar is one of the most notorious self-promoters in all history. We, We talked about how Hugh Jackman in The Greatest Showman had nothing compared to Caesar's commentaries in uh, DiBello Gallico, his, his Gallic War commentaries. Uh, we think what really happened was he just took some important hostages uh, for good behavior, and he got a promise from some of the tribes that they would pay an annual tribute to Rome. And the Celts agreed to pay him, and he got back in his boats, and he took his legions back to Gaul, and the Celts probably never paid him a dime or, or whatever they were paying back then. The Roman legion Caesar was using was about 4,500 men. Roughly, yeah. Yeah. And these were professional and trained soldiers. Uh, These were guys who would probably serve about 20 to 25 years in the same legion working together. Uh, They liked to use short swords. uh, They threw spears. And they were really disciplined. Uh, They were really big on infantry. They kept in really tight lines that would rotate through, always making sure that there was a fresh line of men at the front to fight. Yeah, so they developed this pretty good system for their army over like 400 years or so. Yeah, and and we see that it's brought them so much success and so much conquering throughout the world, and it was effective. They really nailed their logistics. They were great at marching and a lot of things that didn't involve fighting. Every night they would actually build a fortress and they would make sure they had walls so they would not be vulnerable to attack overnight. And they could even march a steady pace of about 20 miles per day. Yeah, and so they were very, you know, just hyper-organized. 
Uh, on the other hand, the Celts were kind of a do-your-own-thing sort of hippie warrior. Yeah, free spirit hippie warriors. Kind of free spirit like you were when you were little. Uh, the Celts would march to battle, and they would just sort of go street brawl on their enemies. Uh, like every other army, you know, you use whatever you can afford. So if you're a rich Celt, you got a chariot, you got a big long sword, and if you're a poor guy, you basically use uh, a spear or whatever else you can grab. So it was a it was a mix. It wasn't uniform like the way the Romans were. And when we say chariot, uh, not all chariots are created equal here. Uh, these have been around since the biblical times, but for the Celts. That was really a way to force yourself into battle. Uh, they were lightweight, made of wood, built for speed, and it would get you to the apex of the battle, to the height of the fighting, and the Celts, uh, loving their show of bravery, would jump out, spear in hand, and attack. So they weren't as useful for really breaking up lines of battle like other... Like heavy cavalry, cataphracts under the... Yeah. Yeah, Turks and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, they love to prove their bravery, but sometimes bravery is not as important as keeping in line and keeping bigger objectives in mind. And logistics. So like you say, the Romans were big into logistics and the Celts, not so much. When the Celts went to war, uh, their army was not just their fighting force. It was the whole village had to come along. The block party. Yeah, exactly. It reminds me of Manduhai and the Mongols. You had to also oh, yeah. think about the women and children come. You got to have your cabbage salesmen. You got to have uh, everyone come along. So they would have druids, priests, priestesses, families, wives, children, oxen, horses, and people to pretty much sell merch along the way. It's kind of like the Burning Man Festival. So looking back when we say that their army vastly outnumbered their enemies, uh, we have to also think about that included the supporting families. Yeah. And and so the numbers, you know, Caesar's always going to exaggerate the numbers of his enemies. Uh, but Caesar never really fought a big battle against the Iceni tribe when he was there, did he? He just sort of declared victory and then went home. Yeah. He would pat himself on the back and then head out. He had a lot of other big historical things to do. Yeah, and we're talking again the time of like the mid-50s BC. Yeah. Almost a century later in 43 AD, the Romans come back, and this time under Emperor Tiberius. And Tiberius wanted to set some Roman rules up in Britannia. He brought four different legions to go and help him subdue the southeastern countryside. And within about four years, he was able to do just that. He stationed those legions, he collected taxes, and overall were able to subdue those tribes. So this wasn't really the kinder, gentler government of uh, Julius Caesar. No, definitely not. Uh, the Romans uh, shoved one tribe off of its land in southeastern England and gave all of the land over to retired Roman generals. You have to reward the people who have served you. Unfortunately, it was at the expense of the tribe's people. The new retirees build a city called Colchester, which we talked about earlier is in Essex now, uh, where Natalie yeah, grew up. Yeah, that's where she grew up. Mm -hmm. um, in the city, they build a big temple uh, dedicated to Emperor Claudius, who by then was deigned officially a god. Kind of nice perk of office. Yeah. The Romans went around to the noble Celtic families and said, hey, by the way, I know we just took your land, but we also need you to pay for our new temple. And he forced them to give over the money to pay to put up a big statue of Claudius um, and, and more temples dedicated to the Romans. And that's not really a good way to win over the hearts and minds of the locals, is it? 
No. So next door, the Iceni were sweating over this new threat in nearby Colchester, or Camelodunum at the time. They're looking over next door and seeing some stuff that they don't like the Romans doing. Exactly. While the Iceni didn't officially get pushed off their land by this time, they wanted to make sure that they had good relationships with their new neighbors. The Iceni's king, uh, a guy named Prasutacus, he actually rewrote his will to give a chunk of his land uh, over to Rome when he passed. He was hoping to keep Rome from getting overly greedy and taking his entire kingdom. Uh, Prasutacus was probably a pro-Rome king, but we don't really know as much about his life. Yeah, but we do know that Prasutagus died, and this was probably around 60 AD-ish, something like that. And at this time, Nero, you know, the famous, like, fiddle while Rome burned, that guy was Rome's emperor. And he apparently Prasutagus left his kingdom to his daughters, who were too young to marry, so he appointed his wife, Queen Boudicca, to act as the regent for the daughters until they were old enough to marry. Uh, But Rome didn't consider his will to be valid at that point. No, I mean, they were colonizers and conquerors. They didn't see this token of this conquered king as an agreement. They said, well, when the native king dies, we just get to take that over and decide who's in charge. Rome figured that Queen Boudicca was probably not going to be very happy with this, so they knew they needed to send her a message, and they wanted to strike first before she could voice any dissent or lead a revolt. They send down the Ninth Legion to go teach her this lesson. They drag her out of her tent, and they start publicly whipping her in front of her other tribe's people. They had Boudicca lashed until her back was bleeding, and then, for good measure, they dragged out her two daughters and had them publicly raped in front of their mother, Um, and they write off after that. It was incredibly traumatic for her. Yeah, well, for her and her daughters, and it probably took her some time to recover from from that assault. Yeah, and and I can't imagine she would ever recover uh, working in uh, psychiatry. I see a lot of these patients who, once they have sexual trauma and assault trauma, they almost can never recover. You know, you, you can move on, but those scars stay with you, and it, it can definitely affect your worldview and your development. So, And, and probably your, your cost-benefit analysis, too. Definitely. You know, she kind of snapped after that point and just went into full-on rage mode. Yeah, it, it would go on to affect a lot of her decisions going forward. And for her, closure had to come in the form of burning Roman cities to the ground. Yeah, I mean, she didn't look after that, at least from the sources that we know. We've got Tacitus, we've got uh, Dio, a few others from the time, probably Tacitus, or we call him Tacitus in America. Um, you know, that they they don't really tell us that she ever was looking for a negotiated peace or a, an agreed settlement, kind of like Tamiris was with Cyrus the Great. Uh, She was going to burn every Roman out of the big island that they were calling Britannia. Ancient Britain was a brutal time. The Romans and inhabitants of Britannia were struggling for survival and freedom, and Boudicca's rebellion would burn across southern England. After the break, we'll hear about what Queen Boudicca and her army did next. In the winter of the year 61, 
Boudicca went around to other Celtic tribes and persuaded them, hey guys, you need to join the fight. You need to get ahead before you get God here. She probably went around showing them her scars and was able to convince them that they needed to come with her on her rampage. In the spring of 61, as many as 120,000 Celts converged together on Colchester. And at the time, the Romans had actually taken down their defensive walls because they wanted to use the land uh, to farm and have crops. Yeah, I think you said this was a, a soldier's colony effectively. And, you know, one of the perks you get for all this work you do for 25 years in the Roman army or 20 years is that you get to retire with a little bit of land. And we've seen with uh, the story of Cleopatra, um, kind of everybody who's involved with the time of the Roman Republic and Empire, that uh, the army had to be compensated. And one of their compensations now is they get this great farmland. Yeah. Well, you don't need a, a town wall if you got farmland. Knock over that wall. Let's let's put some crops there. Yeah, and, and that had to be an affront to the Celts. I mean, watching these Roman generals who had essentially conquered them, just sitting there and enjoying the products of the Celtic land, it, it was terrible. So, Rome at the time was led by a general named Gaius Suetonius Paulinius, who was a highly capable veteran of war. And he was sent to pretty much be the governor of Britannia. He had a pretty good track history in Africa and the Middle East for war, and he was itching to get his name back out there. So he was uh, ready for a fight. He and his 20th legion were busy on the other side of the island at the time, putting down a revolt um, in western Wales on Mona Island. So at the time, he did not know really what was going on in Boudicca's neck of the woods. Uh, it would have been about 250 miles away. So while Suetonius is away, uh, Boudicca's now unleashing payback on the eastern portion of Britain. Exactly. And in true war queen fashion, Boudicca gives this incredible speech to her army. She prays to a druidic goddess uh, for victory. And one uh, Roman historian, Dio, as you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. Now, and Dio's writing a few hundred years, a couple hundred years later. Yes. So yeah. So, take it for what it's worth. Yeah. Um, but Dio tells us that she does kind of a ritual and she's wearing this big colorful dress and she... I guess, pulls up a fold of it and magically a rabbit runs out in, quote, an auspicious direction, um, which I'm imagining the soldiers, you know, watching this and being like, oh, that rabbit ran in such an auspicious direction. Like, <laughs> Very, terribly auspicious. <laughs> yes. Um, but either way, her interpreter said, this is a sign that we are going to win the battle. Um, and, and they did. It would work. Boudicca's chariots broke through the brittle front lines, and her army absolutely sacks Colchester. And they basically slaughter every man, woman, and child viciously. The few victims that weren't initially butchered hid in that temple of Claudius we talked about earlier, uh, but they were only able to hide out for a day or two before they were dragged out. That sounds like, you know, cinematically, the worst place in the world you could be at the time. And, well, I guess next to us, the uh, podcast uh, audio audiences can't see it, but uh, Emily and I are sitting in front of a green screen with Natalie. There are uh, big Tyrannosaurus Rexes chasing us and helicopters no. shooting at the dinosaurs. So it's it's all really cool. Yeah, no. Okay. Um, but if you're a Roman, for sure, this temple would have been a bad place to yeah, be. Yeah, this was like next level uh, massacre area. Our sources tell us that she left bodies on crucifixes, 
burned people alive, uh, cut out the body parts of others, and just was nasty and vicious to everyone that was caught. She had houses burned to the ground, she demolished homes, and she even chopped off the head of that statue of Claudius and threw it in the river. And they actually did find that uh, statue head, and it's Mm -hmm. in a museum in Colchester now. Yeah, yeah. So... All this stuff is going on in Camelodunum or or Colchester. It doesn't take long for the Roman leadership to find out what's going on. Uh, They had a guy in charge of taxes in Londinium, which, of course, is modern London. Uh, He called the Ninth Legion to help, and the Ninth Legion started to march, but they got ambushed on the march uh, by Boudicca's army, and that didn't end well for the Romans and the Ninth Legion, did it? No, and Boudicca moved on to her main course, which is the Roman financial capital of Londinium, Mm -hmm. as we just mentioned. And this was a city of about 30,000 at the time, and she absolutely raises that as well, burns it to the ground, another mass slaughter, Um, And actually, in London, there is still a thick layer of uh, charred soot um, that exists today where Boudicca's army torched the place. Mm -hmm. She didn't want to take any prisoners because, as you mentioned, she's here for revenge. But it was a fight for extermination. The people her men captured were, according to Dio, uh, basically sliced, cut, and tortured to death. And she wouldn't stop there. She moves on to her next target, St. Albums, which the Romans refer to as Verulamium. She does essentially the same thing, except the townspeople there actually got the memo before they showed up and cleared out. Yeah, everybody had pieced out by the time she arrived. So the Romans at this point are now 0 for 4 against Boudicca's army. Exactly. And what that tells us is she actually had a pretty good strategic plan. She had hit the largest Roman cities in Britain and broken Roman political infrastructure. I think she had to kind of know that with such a big army and having to bring along all the supporters, this was kind of a game for time, and she had to hit hard while she was on a good streak. Yeah. So off to the west uh, in Wales, Governor Suetonius hears about the sack of Colchester, and he races back east. So he's in the southern part of England. Uh, With a small detachment, he arrives at Londinium to see what's going on. Now, he had gotten there actually ahead of Boudicca's army, and his military judgment told him, Londinium is not a town we can defend. Uh, There's just too big an army, uh, and we've got too few defenders. So he basically said, we're not going to fight here. His army was still marching back from Wales, so... Uh, Suetonius rides back with his army and he begins to play a game of cat and mouse in central England down an old Roman road uh, with Boudicca's army trying to push toward him. Boudicca had extracted her revenge from the Romans, overrunning cities and slaughtering Nero's legions. But war relies on a lot more than rage and revenge and Boudicca's army was getting badly overstretched. We'll see what she did next when we return from the break. So while Boudicca had the strategy, the Romans had the tactics. We talked about earlier, they were very organized. And Boudicca did a great job of laying waste to the Roman cities, but she knew she had to finish off Suetonius very quickly. She was running out of time. Her army was about 80,000 by now, and they didn't have much food to last them for long. 
She knew the Romans could outmarch them. They were going at a 20-mile pace per day. Um, and the Romans were also killing everything in their wake so that nothing could support uh, the Celts. If Boudicca's army had been breaking down by the time they caught up, they would have no chance for a victory. It's kind of like when you play Risk and you're on this great streak, but you know as you go further and further taking over territories, in this case burning cities, you're depleting your sources as you go, and if you spread yourself too thin, you're going to be vulnerable to a quick defeat. Knowing this, Suetonius continued his scorched earth method, and he essentially waited out for Boudicca, uh, probably near a water source, which was about 70 miles west of London. Yeah, and so we don't really know where exactly this battle took place. Uh, it's been called the Battle of Watling Street, which is based, not a street, it was sort of an old Roman road. And in the book, we've got a footnote about how a guy tried to figure out where Boudicca's army went by tracing the different water sources. Uh, because, you know, if you're an army, what's the most important thing you have to have to be able to continue? Yeah, water. Yeah, it's, it's like, I think it was Kipling in Gunga Din wrote, when it comes to slaughter, you'll do your work on water and you'll lick the bloomin' boots of him what's got it. <laughs> well, they needed water, so that, that was probably, it probably gives us a good sense of where the battle took place, but we don't know, we haven't been able to excavate it uh, archaeologically. But it's, a, it's along a main road and it becomes known as the Battle of Watling Street. And we know from Tacitus, whose father-in-law was actually on Suetonius's staff, um, Tacitus tells us that Suetonius set his smaller army in a clearing that was surrounded by trees. Um, and they did this because they knew that the Celtic chariots would not be able to run around them um, and go around their flanks uh, or from the rear. It was a place that favored a smaller army with shields, throwing spears and swords, because the Celts could only come at them from one direction. Yeah, it's kind of like Agincourt would be later on with mm -hmm. the French knights against the smaller English army. Yeah, exactly. Um, Boudicca knew her armies were brave, but they also got bored really easily. I mean, we talked about earlier this uh, Celtic philosophy of bravery, and they, they put a lot of value on you know, give your life for those big moments and, and go down in history, but that would not serve really well on the battlefield. Yeah, I, I think Napoleon had talked once about how the most important quality of a soldier is not bravery, but it's persistence and endurance and perseverance and, and the ability to deal with deprivations and still go on. And the Celts really were not wired for that. They liked the energy and the high moments. Uh, they, they were sprinters. They weren't marathon runners. That's a great way to put it. And at this point, she was more managing a horde than an army. Um, Tacitus tells us that both commanders gave amazing, brave speeches, and they inspired their people before the battle. Um, we don't really know if they necessarily did that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not like in the movies, sorry, Natalie, where, you know, the general yells something that not more than 10 people can hear, <laughs> yeah. and the whole army roars in support of, of what he just said. It, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, I'd be gutted if I was at the back. I'd be like, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Tacitus tells us that Boudicca told her army that we are going to win or we are going to die. And those are your choices. And she was with them. She said, I'm going to win or I'm going to die. She wasn't just going to watch. For her, it was victory or it was death. She would not be a slave. So the battle starts off with the Celtic fighters charging. Of course, we said they were the hotheads and the brave ones. The Romans hold their ground behind their shields. And when the Celts were about 40 feet away, they started throwing their spears and they took out a number of Boudicca's front ranks. 
With it being such a small clearing, the Celts didn't have a lot of room because they fought with long swords. Remember, the Romans fought with short swords. So, and they're they're probably doing the whole swing around at the top of their heads, yeah. you know, hack down, kind of like which is which is cool in the movies, but it's not as practical. The Romans like to do the little pointy, jabby, stabby thing, exactly. which is not as cinematic, but it does uh, does get the job done. Yeah, yeah. They they had the restraint to know that uh, they needed to take out the front ranks before they could charge, and and they did just that. Um, the Celtic fighters finally got pushed back. And on their back line, there was actually a lot of wives and girlfriends and priests hanging out back there. And the whole thing just becomes this vicious mess. Uh, the Celtic lines buckle, Romans run over the whole group and just slaughtered men, women, children, horses, cattle, everybody who pretty much could not run them. Yeah, I mean, even like the, the mules and things or donkeys or whatever they had, they would cut them up. Um, so... Yeah, we talked a while back, uh, I forget whose episode it was, on how when you get to the pursuit phase, once a, a line of an army cracks in these ancient battles, that's where a lot of the slaughter takes place. So Boudicca's line gets shoved up against each other, they crack. Now it's the Romans' turn to just go in and chop everybody in front of them down. Um, but then what happens to Boudicca? We don't know exactly for sure. As a leader, she probably would have been given the opportunity and the word, hey, this is your time to get out if you're going to get out. Uh, some people say she took some poison after the battle, but the fact is we just don't really know. Uh, we never hear anything from her or her daughters again after the Battle of Watling Street. Um, so most likely she did die soon after the battle. Yeah, I mean, a lot of ways she could have gone out and we just don't really know. And unfortunately, Boudicca did not leave a really good legacy like some of these women did. Um, I mean, remember, her army had been called up, and this was in the spring of 61, I think. So they hadn't had a chance to sow their fields. So they go back home, and there's no food growing in the fields to return to. Um, the countryside went into a big uh, famine. There was a lot of starvation. And the Roman army marched through the territory. This would have been uh, Essex, Norfolk, Suffolk, Kent, basically laying waste to anything to uh, make sure the Iceni couldn't rise up again. Yeah, they pretty much broke the back of the resistance um, and just oppressed Britannia even more for what would be the next couple hundred years. Yeah, yeah. So, so Emily, um, what do you take away from Boudicca's leadership and how would you rate her as a war queen? That is a tricky one here because she was operating on rage, essentially, and revenge. Um, and while that burns bright and is effective for a very short amount of time, I really don't see the long game that she was playing here. She was great at invigorating her armies and giving great speeches of courage, so I give her some points for um, pulling together this massive force of Celts. Um, but she wasn't as good with the logistics. I gotta take away some points there. She ran her army to the end of their food and water lines, and that kind of left her with no choice in the end. But I do have to give her some points. I mean, going up against one of the world's biggest superpowers and coming out with some solid victories, I won't take that away from her, but I honestly think I'd have to give her probably a four. Yeah. <laughs> not, not great marks. I mean, among our, our war queens, uh, one thing we learn is that you can't just use the quick cinematic, uh, beautiful moment to get you where you want to be. War is a long, complicated process, and that's something that I don't know Boudicca 
and her armies fully appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an incredible story against, like you say, a battle against the world's great superpower. The story of Queen Boudicca is a mixed one. Her people were oppressed, her daughters had been violently assaulted, and she was ready to take up the spear to drive out the foreign invaders. She drove them through southern England, including my home county, with a bloodthirst not seen in many of our war queens. But war requires resources and planning, and blood and rage will not make up for it in a long war against a professional army. She ended badly, and her story would be told by the victors, the Romans. Yet Boudicca became a symbol of defiance that inspires people to this day in the city she burned to the ground. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of War Queens. That's our show for today. Listen to every episode of War Queens for more stories of women who brought their nations through the fires of war. questions for us about war queens if you're curious about something you heard on the show we'd love to hear from you please email us at warqueens at diversionaudio.com again that's warqueens at diversionaudio.com we'll try to answer your questions on a future episode find us on twitter facebook and instagram at warqueens podcast war queens is a production of diversion audio Your hosts are John Jordan, Emily Jordan, and I'm Natalie Emmanuel. The show is written by John and Emily Jordan based on their book, The War Queens. Our supervising producer and sound designer is Mark Francis. With production assistance from Antonio Enriquez. Editorial direction from Jacob Bronstein and Scott Waxman. Our head of marketing is Erica Farmer. Our theme music is by Tyler Cash. Executive producers, Jacob Bronstein, Mark Francis, and Scott Waxman for Diversion Audio. Audio.